0: Amen. If you're new with us, we're going through the book of 2 Corinthians. uh, And today is going to be uh, a two-parter, which we hope to uh, finish next week. Let's uh, go to the Lord and ask for his help as we study his word together. Father, we're thankful today that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And even now, that work is going on. And I pray you would continue to sanctify your church by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Shane did a wonderful job last week taking us through uh, the previous verses. Um, we're gonna try to get back to our, our pattern of someone other than me preaching once a month, which we kind of got away from during COVID last year. Um, but that was a very edifying sermon about our reliance upon the Lord. I, Kimberly and I watched the sermon from the airport. I had to be in Kentucky for my sister's wedding. And so we uh, watched, our, uh, watched the service there. And I haven't flown much this year because of uh, the pandemic, had to cancel many trips. And I'm sure many of you uh, can relate to that. Uh, One of the most irrelevant things to have in 2020 was a planner, Uh, right? And in this passage that we're looking at, really, it it continues actually into the end of chapter two, Paul is discussing his travel plans. He's discussing how a change in the travel plan uh, brought up a particular problem that the Corinthians uh, had with Paul. Uh, as you see here in the text where he, uh, he, he raises the question, was I vacillating? Was, was, uh, uh, am I not reliable? As you remember from uh, a couple of weeks ago, I said that one of the issues in this book is, is Paul defending his integrity. And so we're going to look today at uh, marks of integrity in ministry. I have seven of them. We won't get through all of them today. Uh, but in this account, we're looking at something that is both... Uh, uh, biographical, and something that is theological. Paul, Paul could talk about something as mundane as travel plans and uh, weave in it rich gospel truths. Uh, and it is a very edifying and practical talk. Now, nobody really likes to defend themselves, and it's, it's, it's awkward to try to defend yourself. Um, and Paul doesn't do this all the time everywhere, but he has to in this letter because the false teachers, those super apostles, uh, were raising these questions about Paul. They were spinning a narrative about him, right? It, 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 uh, they, they, they mocked his appearance. They said he wasn't a good speaker. They said his motives are not pure. He said he was going to do this, but he did that. He said he was going to come this time, but he came that time. You can't trust the guy. And remember, this is a church that's only about four years old. It's a very delicate situation with these new believers and in defending his integrity, Paul's actually defending the gospel um, because it's so wrapped up with his, his, his ministry. Uh, and so there's much to learn here about all of us, how we can have a ministry of integrity. Now before you dismiss this and think this only applies to those in ministry, let me remind you that every believer is to do ministry. Uh, Paul says uh, the purpose of pastors in Ephesians 4 is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So if you're a Christian, you have a ministry to do. Um, let me remind you of that reality. We're, we're not here to, to be entertained. Surely you'd go somewhere else to be entertained than here, right? Um, we're here to be equipped. We're here to be encouraged to do the work of ministry that God has for us, whether that's in your home, that's a ministry, whether that's among your coworkers or on a campus. And so all of this is very timely and relevant as Paul is talking about both the character of the minister as well as the gospel being at the center of our ministry. The, the issue of character really jumps off the pages as we're going to see this uh, unfold. And I think this is a very timely word because we live in a world today that in, in which many people are judged by their performance and not on their character. And so uh, politicians can be excused because they perform a certain way when their character is terrible. The same is true for movie stars and sports figures and pastors (laughs) who can be judged by their output. How many people read their books? Who knows them? What kind of influence they have in the political arena? And what we see in 2 Corinthians is that character counts. It counts in life and ministry. Who we are matters, not just what we do, but who we are. And so I want us to look at these seven traits of integrity in ministry. Number one, grace-enabled godliness. Grace-enabled godliness. We see this in the, the opening verses here uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as Paul begins to talk here about boasting, which is a, an interesting uh, thing that Paul does in this letter. He, uh, he, he brings this up more than in any other book. And that's because boasting was very common in Corinth. Uh, you know, they, it was kind of like uh, battle rappers, so the Kumo Mo D and, and LL Cool J uh, going at it. The, these speakers were, were known for entertaining crowds and so on. And again, Paul later says that his, his preaching, his speaking wasn't all that uh, impressive. And so Paul brings up the issue of boasting, but it's a unique kind of boasting. It's a boasting in the grace of God. Later he says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Notice he says, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and with godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. Therefore, God gets the glory in this boast because it isn't, uh, Paul's behavior isn't derived and, and it doesn't emanate from his own ingenuity and human resourcefulness, He can live and minister in a godly way by the grace of God. And that's the only way we pursue godliness as well, by his grace. The testimony of his conscience, that is, it is clear, and that has been produced by God's grace. The assessment of Paul was very hurtful to Paul, but his conscience was clean before God. And he says, this is what I glory in. A clean conscience is foundational for ministry. Now, to be clear, a clean conscience doesn't mean you're sinless. What this means is there's not a sin, Paul is saying, that I'm aware of that I have not confessed before the Lord or before someone else that it needs to be confessed to. You see, repentance is not uh, like in college basketball, one and done. It is an ongoing discipline of a Christian. We are constantly confessing and repenting of sin. That's how we maintain a clean conscience, right? Um, later Paul, or in Acts, Paul says before Felix, I have always taken great pains to have a clean conscience before God and people. Taking pains. That is the, the pain of having conversation, the pain of repentance. It, it takes discipline and it takes action. Now, in the pastoral epistles, which we call 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that issue has brought up a lot, the issue of one's conscience. And I just, we're just highlighting it here in 2 Corinthians. As one writer said, 2 Corinthians is like a pastoral epistle because it speaks so much about ministry and the motives for it. And here the emphasis is on having a clean conscience before God. And this is why this is so practical when it comes to serving God in his church. You cannot make people happy in ministry all the time. And so what are you to do? When you're misunderstood, criticized, or people make hurtful accusations about you, you live with a clean conscience before God. That's what you do. Because if you don't please God, it doesn't matter who you please. We're in ministry for the glory of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we make it our aim to please Him. That's who we aim to please. And Paul says, I've done this, but it's not again by my own strength. It's by God's grace. It's a grace-enabled grace enabled godliness. His conscience was clear because he had acted in simplicity, he says, and godly sincerity. Not by the world's strategies, but he's operated in this realm of grace, making all of his decisions based on spiritual reasons. And I love this. This word simplicity is a wonderful word. It means single-minded commitment. Again, it's that idea we make it our aim to please him. And with sincerity, which carries the idea of uh, holding something up to the sunlight to, to test it for inspection. That is, he's transparent, right? He says later in the letter, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity. So Paul is saying here that this life above reproach is necessary and it is enabled by God's amazing grace. So may all of us pursue a holy life by the grace of God. And here's what you'll find out in ministry. Godliness not only honors God, but it makes up for a lot of your deficiencies. You may not be a good speaker, but if you're godly, people will listen to you. They'll be impacted by you. In fact, I bet many of you, your favorite preachers are not hotshot preachers, but they walked with God. And there was a gravity about them. And their mothers and godly grandmothers who are the same. We, we don't have the same degree of gifting or the same kind of gifting, but what we can all do together is pursue godliness. And that godliness honors God, and it makes up for a lot of our deficiencies. Now secondly, we need in ministry not just grace-enabled godliness, but we need an eschatological vision. Big word, that is, a vision of the end. We just sang about it uh, in that Living He love Me song, whatever it's called, right? Um... That we we need a a vision of the future because ministry can can feel mundane. The the service can feel like ho-hum at times. And we've got to remember what we're doing. And so as Paul is talking here to the Corinthians, he makes this little passing comment. And it doesn't really elaborate on it, but we, we need to note it because it's so encouraging. He says in verse 13, we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and, under, and under, understand, and I hope you will fully understand. Just as you did partially understand us, and here's the phrase I'm getting at, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now, let's, let's think about that for a minute. The day of the Lord Jesus speaks of the return and triumph of Christ. And even though Paul doesn't really tease this out in this portion of the letter, it never really strays far from his mind in 2 Corinthians. He drops these little phrases again and again and again, reminding us of the end, reminding us of of the future. And what he's saying here is that we do ministry that is, the ministry of loving each other, serving each other, teaching each other, caring for each other, praying for each other in view of that final day. And because that day is coming, what we do matters. The visit to that hurting person matters. The prayer for that needy person matters. The, the, the tireless work of, of sermon preparation matters. Why? Because Jesus is alive and Jesus is coming again. And he says on that day, we will not only glory in Jesus, which we know we will. He's the hero of the story. But we'll also boast of each other. That is a fantastic thing to be reminded of. You know, some people wonder, will we know each other in heaven? I think this verse puts that beyond a realm of, uh, beyond the realm of possibility. It's a certainty. We will boast, he says. You'll boast of me. You will not be ashamed of me. Some of them were dissing Paul. They were ashamed of Paul. He says, on that day, you will be proud of me, and I will boast of you. You crazy, cantankerous church, the Corinthians. I'm going to boast of you on that final day. And that is quite a thought, isn't it? What this means then, church, is this. Investing in others is worth it. It's worth it. Because the final day is coming. And so when you grow impatient parents with your kids, think about the final day. All right? Your hope's not in the next day. (laughs) It's in the final day. Unless the next day is the final day. Right? You're going to boast of me. I'm going to boast of you, he says. We'll glory in the grace of God together. Now, one of the greatest preachers in church history, Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, preached that verse as his farewell sermon after his church kicked him out. They fired him uh, over a a debate about communion and Edwards reminded them from this text that they would meet again and that there's a special bond between pastor and parishioner. And we just have to keep it on our minds. Caring for the well-being of others is at the heart of of ministry. And uh, thinking about that last day motivates it. One day in the presence of Jesus Christ, we will be filled with joy as we see other believers that we invested in. And our joy in one another, as great as it might be today, will be greater on the day of Christ. We look forward, church, to a fellowship that will never end. And that is why we can say, as we say around here, gospel goodbyes to like the Garners and the Davenports. A gospel goodbye that is sending people off for a gospel mission because we know we have billions of years together to fellowship. We make the temporary sacrifice right now, and we know one day we will boast in each other and will glory in our God as we feast in the house of Zion. So that's mark number two. Mark number three, truthful speech. Paul says his ministry uh, is marked not only by this grace-enabled godliness and an eschatological vision, but honesty. That's integrity in ministry. And now he gets around to these travel plans, the the problem here. He says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. Now, that's not talking about a, a second salvation experience of grace, but rather... Seeing him twice would have been a blessing to them. He says, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way. Was I vacillating when I had to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Paul's going to go on to root his integrity in God's integrity. And basically to argue this point, he's not wishy-washy. He wasn't speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Now, it's not important to know this whole itinerary, but I'll give it to you anyway. Okay? If you read 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says he intended to go uh, from Ephesus to Macedonia. Macedonia is where Philippi and Thessalonica, those churches were. Uh, He was going to go there and then to Corinth, and he's going to stay the whole winter. So not a short visit, a long visit. Okay uh got his worship blanket out, just enjoying each other's company. And then they were going to send him over to uh, Jerusalem with the offering. Well, that didn't happen. He revised his plan, and that's what we read about in verse 16. And the plan was, uh, instead of going that route, he was going to see them twice. He was going to go from Ephesus to Corinth, up to Macedonia, back down to Corinth, and then to Jerusalem. But what happened is he got a negative report about the church, and he has to make, chapter 2, verse 1, a painful visit. So he just shoots over from Ephesus, straight across to Greece to see the Corinthians, and then he's back. And so the Corinthians did not get the long winter visit, and they didn't get the double visit. They got nothing. And what's happening now is people are putting the details in for the church, spinning a narrative about Paul. And the change in plans caused this big rift as people are making up stories. They're saying he's fickle. You can't trust him. He said he was going to do this. He didn't do that. But the issue is the circumstances changed. Therefore, Paul had to change his plans. And we know how this works. We had a whole year of that, right, of changing plans. I mean, I had opening day tickets last year to see the Nets. We were going to see Hamilton in Washington, D.C. I was going to go on sabbatical. None of that happened. I'm not angry. I'm not upset or bitter, but maybe a little bit. But but as you as you change plans, it helps to talk about it. It's very therapeutic. Uh, as as the circumstances change, your plans change, and that's the point. Paul is saying, "I'm an honest guy. I really intended to do that itinerary. I really intended to do the other itinerary, but I didn't. And now he instead wrote them a painful letter, and they're they're." They're really making up issues about the Apostle Paul. He later tells them, we'll look at this next week, that one of the reasons he didn't come to them again was to give them time to repent and correct the problems that he wrote about. He viewed it as an expression of, of mercy, that after the painful letter, instead of a, another visit, they would dwell on what he said and and, and change and uh, turn to God. And as we see, that happened. That happened. So just two really quick applications Um, as you think about this particular issue that we're looking at. Number one, give your brothers and sisters the benefit of the doubt. When you don't have all the details, the church was very uncharitable to Paul. Very uncharitable. And that's a good lesson for us in these days because it's easy to put the worst possible spin on a narrative. You know, you hear phrases like this, he said that, but I know what he means. Or she said this, and then you press them and say, do they really say that? Well, not really. Not in so many words. Well, that's, that's problematic, isn't it? Some Christians lack discernment. They, they need wisdom. They need to make good decisions. But other Christians lack restraint and charity. They like to size people up and claim they know people's motivations and all those things. We don't always have the answers. Right? Somebody looks really tired or groggy, you could could make a number of uh, assessments of that issue. (laughs) You know, uh, their marriage must not be good, right? Or, um, well, maybe they just had NyQuil last night and they're in a fog. Like, we we don't have all the details, but it's so easy to fill them in with our own ideas and spin things. And that's not the, 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 the church that should be marked by sympathy and kindness and direct conversation and grace and as we learn from Paul, the second application is to be truthful and honest. Let our yes be our yes and our no be our no. Knowing that sometimes circumstances will change, but that mark, that's a mark of integrity. All right, number four, finally. Christ-centered proclamation. This should go without saying, but Paul says it, so we underscore it. That if we're going to have an integrity, uh, integrity in ministry, we have to preach the gospel. Otherwise, we're not doing gospel ministry. And so Paul here ties his integrity to God's integrity. As he says in verse 18, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So he attributes his integrity to the faithfulness of God. Again, it's not emanating from him in his flesh. It's due to the work of God in his life. That's how he can be a, a minister of integrity. God is sustaining him. God is faithful to him. And then he goes to to give you some proofs of the faithfulness of God. And the first proof that he gives is the fact that God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Notice he says here in verse 19, For the Son of God, which calls our attention back to David and the promise made to him about one sitting on the throne forever. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's a wonderful verse, isn't it? <clears throat> so he's, he's here tying his integrity to God's integrity, saying God has empowered it. he sustained me. And let me just remind you while I'm here about the faithfulness of God. And so he goes on a little tangent. And that's how Paul works. He talks about traveling, and now he's into all the promises of God, find their yes in Christ. And I'm glad he did because we have here uh, the, the important reminder about proclaiming Christ and how the whole Bible climaxes in Jesus Christ. And one of the things Paul is doing, it seems, also is saying he's using a greater to a lesser argument. If I would do the great thing that is proclaim the gospel to you, then surely you can trust me about a little thing like a change in travel plans. I have preached the gospel to you, he says. The God, the Bible, how it flows uh, to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Church God is faithful. Lest we ever doubt that, we look to the promises of God in scripture. We look at how Jesus Christ has fulfilled them. Jesus is the yes to the fulfillment of the promises. Jesus is God's big yes to the world. He's not the world's maybe, he's the yes to reconcile sinners to God and that's what he does. He came with a clear plan and fulfilled it. He is God's yes. One of my favorite baseball announcers is the White Sox, the Hawk. And whenever the team hits a home run, he always says, you can put it on the board, yes. I thought about that as I read this text. Because Jesus paid it all. You can put it on the board. Yes. All the promises of God find their yes in him. All of the anticipations, all of the predictions of the Messiah have been decisively and irreversibly declared to be yes. Christ is God's yes to the promise of Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He is David's offspring who reigns forever. He is Isaiah's suffering servant who was wounded for our transgressions. He is Daniel's son of man who will come again in glory. He is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He is the second Adam who obeyed the father perfectly. He is the better ark who provides salvation to all who run to him for refuge. He is the royal king declared in the Psalms. He is the greater Isaac that was offered up for our salvation. He is the greater Moses who brought us a greater exodus. He is the greater Boaz who feeds the hungry at his table and brings us into the family. He is the true manna from heaven who satisfies our hungry hearts. He is the water from the rock that saves us. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is our Sabbath rest. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And to read the Old Testament without having Jesus in view is like reading a mystery novel without the last chapter. You would get to it and say, what's up, mate? You write the publisher. Where's my last chapter? Jesus is the last chapter. He is the yes. He's not a maybe. He is a yes. And church, he is the only yes. Any other potential savior is a no. There's only salvation in Jesus Christ. They all lead you down a dead end, but not in Christ. He's the yes. He's the answer to our greatest questions. Forgiveness, yes. Satisfaction, yes. Eternal life, yes. Reconcile to God, yes. Will he have you if you're not a Christian? Yes, he will have you. You can know him. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. All of them, every one of them. What God pledged, Christ fulfilled. What God said he would do, Christ did it. Jesus Christ. The crucified and risen Savior is the ultimate proof that God is faithful. Never doubt it. And right now, if you're in a hard time, derive strength today from knowing that our God is faithful. Unless you doubt His faithfulness for a second, take this book of promises and linger over them. Linger over the good news of Jesus Christ. Take the Bible like a lozenge you know you just slowly kind of let it enjoy it unless you don't have self-control like me you eat it immediately let the let the lozenge let the lozenge of god's word marinate that's a mixed metaphor but let it sweeten right you know what i mean right work with me i'm cold up here all of it and so paul says because of all this we utter our amen we utter, we're getting better at amens here. We can still do better. The younger generation, you can you can play too, okay? We we say amen. What is amen? Amen. That was that was in the news recently, was it? Somebody made a never mind. <laughs> Maybe he's watching. Here you go, pal. Um, <laughs> it's the celebratory response that we declare as people who have received this salvation. It's celebratory. It's, it's saying, I like that. I agree with that. I celebrate that. And Paul says, when me and my companions, my boys Silvanus and Timothy, when we preached, you guys said yes. You said amen. Declaring that God is faithful to the glory of God. Now, I'm going to pause it there for today. Paul goes on to say something wonderful and that is the spirit of God confirms this reality that God's faithfulness is seen in the past looking to Christ but it's also seen in the present that the spirit of God indwells us God is faithful and our spirit today is rejoicing because God is faithful so praise be to our faithful God praise be to our Messiah who is our yes praise be to the spirit who empowers us for ministry to be ministers of integrity who confirms all of these promises God has said yes to the world and the question for you is have you said yes to him and if you're not a Christian we would love to talk to you about turning from your sin and placing your faith in Jesus Christ and he will have you yes he will let's pray together father glorious promises that we have in your word, we bless you. Our hearts are filled with gratitude, and we're weak people. We need your strength, grateful for the Holy Spirit who enables and empowers us. Lord Jesus, as we think about your fulfilling work, we turn to the table today, and we pray you would nourish us fresh as your body.